Chapters nine and ten of Everybody's Lonesome. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Everybody's Lonesome by Clara E. Laughlin. Chapter nine. Telling the secret to mother. In March, Godmother said, "I am going abroad for the summer, dear, and I've just had a conference with my man of affairs. He reports some unexpectedly good dividends from my small handful of stock, in a company that is enjoying a boom." And so, if we're careful, you and I, there will be enough so I can take you with me. Mary Alice was too surprised, too happy to speak. Now you'll want to go home, of course, Godmother went on, and so we'll agree on a sailing date, and then you may fly back to Mother as soon as you wish, and stay till it's time to go abroad. They decided to sail the first of May, so Mary Alice went home almost immediately. And on an evening late in March, got off the train onto that familiar platform, whence she had so fearfully set forth only four short months ago. Father was at the station to meet her, and at home, by the soft coal fire burning beneath the white marble mantel in the sitting room, mother was sewing and waiting for her. Mary Alice was thinking, as she and father neared the house, of that miserable evening in the fall. When she had stolen past her mother, and gone up to her room and wept passionately, in the dark, because life had no enchantment for her, there would be no stealing past dear mother now, for the secret was for mother too, yes, very much indeed for mother, as Mary Alice and Godmother had agreed in their wonderful tucking and talk the night before Mary Alice came away. All the way home on the train, she had hardly been able to wait till she got to mother with this beautiful new thing in her heart. Perhaps mother had dreaded her girl's homecoming in a way, almost as much as she yearned for it. But if she had, Mary Alice never knew it, and if she had, mother herself soon forgot it. For in all the twenty years of Mary Alice's life, her mother had never, it seemed, had so much of her girl as in the month that followed her homecoming. Hour after hour, they worked about the house, or sat before that great fire in the unchanged sitting room. And talked and talked and talked, Mary Alice told every little detail of those four months, until her mother lived them over with her, and the light and life of them animated her as they had animated Mary Alice. Little by little in that month, Mary Alice came at least to the beginning of a wonderful new understanding, came to see how parents, and godparents, cease to have any particular future of their own and live in the futures of the young things they love. Mary Alice's bleak years had been bitter for her mother too, perhaps bitterer than for her, and her new enchantment with life was like new blood in her mother's veins. Mother cried when Mary Alice told her the secret. Oh, it's true! It's true! She said, "If only everybody could know it, what a different world this would be." And as for the other, when Mary Alice told her mother about him and what his coming into her life. And his going out of it had meant, mother just held her girl close and could not speak. The precious month flew by on wings as of the wind. Mary Alice was the town wonder, as her brother Johnny said, and she enjoyed that as only a girl who has been the town wallflower can. But after all, everything was as nothing compared with mother, and the exaltation that had so evidently come into her life. Because out of her love and pain and sacrifice, a soul had come into the world to draw so richly from the treasures of other hearts, and to give so richly back again. There is no triumph like it, 
as Mary Alice would perhaps know some day. A mother's purest happiness is very like God's own. But at last the sailing date was close at hand. Mary Alice's heart was heavy and glad together. If I could only take you, she whispered to her mother. Mother shook her head. I wouldn't go and leave your father and the children, she said. You go and enjoy it all for me. I like it better that way. And so, once more, Mary Alice smiled through tear-filled eyes at the dear faces on the station platform, and was gone again into the big world beyond her home. But this time, what a different girl it was who went. CHAPTER Ten, THE OLD WORLD AND THE KING They had an unusually delightful voyage. The weather was perfection, and their fellow voyagers included many persons interesting to talk with, and many others interesting to observe and speculate about. One particularly charming experience came to Mary Alice through the captain's appreciation of her eagerness. Godmother had taught her to love the stars, as well as they could in New York, where, to most people, only scraps of sky are visible at a time. They had been wont to watch with keen interest for the nightly appearance of stars they could see from their windows, or from the streets as they went to and fro. And when they got aboard ship, and had the whole sky to look at, they reveled in their night hours on the deck, and in picking out the constellations and their bright, particular stars. This led the captain to tell Mary Alice something of the stars as the sailor's friends, and she had one of the most memorable evenings of her life when he explained to her something of the science of navigation, and made her see how their great greyhound of the ocean, just like the first frail barks of the Tyrians, picked its way across trackless wastes of sea by the infallible guidance of the friendly stars. All this particularly interested Mary Alice, because of someone who lived much in the open, and spent many and many a night on the broad deserts, looking up at the stars. They landed at Naples, and lingered a fortnight in that lovely vicinity, then up to Rome, to Florence and Venice, to Milan and the Italian lakes, through Switzerland into France, and so to Paris. Godmother had once spent a winter at Capri. She had spent several winters in Florence. She knew Venice well. She had hosts of dear familiar things to show Mary Alice in each place. At last they came to Paris. Godmother lamented that it was in July they came. But Mary Alice, who had no recollections of Paris in April and May, found nothing to lament. They stayed more than a month, and made a number of the enchanting little journeys which can be made out of Paris for ever and ever without repeating, it seems. Then, with a trunk in which were two really truly Paris dresses, very, very modest ones, to be sure, but unmistakably touched with Parisian chic, and a mind in which were hundreds of wonderful Paris memories, Mary Alice crossed to England. They went at once to London, where it seemed to Mary Alice she must stay forever to be satisfied. Godmother had hosts of charming friends in London, even beyond what she had in Italy and France. But for the first fortnight she gave up her time entirely to Mary Alice's sightseeing. By and by her friends began to find out she was there, and to clamor insistently for her. And as the exodus from town was as complete as it ever gets, most of the invitations were from the country. So that Mary Alice began to see something of that English country-house life she had read so much about, and to meet personages whose names filled her with awe. 
until she remembered the secret. And thus she came to the great event of her life. Godmother had what Mary Alice called a duchess friend, of whom she was very, very fond. The duchess was a woman about Godmother's age, and quite as lovely to look at as a duchess should be. She was a mistress of many and vast estates, and wore, on occasions, a coronet of diamonds and strings of pearls worth a king's ransom, just like a duchess in a story. But she seemed to Mary Alice to have hardly the mildest interest in the jewels she wore and the palaces she lived in. Mary Alice found it hard to bear in mind that to the duchess these were just as matter-of-fact, as usual, as unvariable, as the home sitting-room, and the good hat had once been to Mary Alice. And like Mary Alice, the Duchess found her happiness in reaching out for something new and different. The Duchess liked the world that Godmother lived in, the world of Godmother's lovely mind, and she loved Godmother's companionship. That was how it came about that Mary Alice found herself very often in exalted society. The exalted personages did not notice her much, but every once in a while, by remembering the secret, she got on happy terms with some of them. And at last, a very unusual thing happened. The king was coming to honor the duke and duchess with a visit, coming to see one of those ancient and glorious estates, the like of which no king owns, and which are the pride of all the kingdom. Many sovereigns had stayed at this splendid old place on England's south coast, a place as famous for its beauty as for its six hundred years of history. So it was no unusual thing for it to house a king. The unusual part of it all was Mary Alice being there. By the king's permission, a wonderful house-party was asked to meet him. Godmother couldn't be asked. She had never been presented, and the king was unaware of her existence. The duchess would not have dared to present Godmother's name on the list submitted to the king. Much less, therefore, would she have dared to present Mary Alice's. But— said the duchess, and went on to unfold a plan. If Mary Alice would not mind staying on with the duchess while Godmother paid another visit, and if she would not mind having a room somewhere in a remote wing, and would not mind not being asked to mingle with the party in any way, she might see something of such sights as perhaps she would never be able to see otherwise. Mary Alice was delighted, partly because she wanted to see the sights, and partly because the thought of going away from this wonderful place made her heart ache. So she was moved out of the fine guest suite she and Godmother had been lodged in, and over to a room in a far wing of the vast house. From this wing one could look down onto the terraces for which the love and genius of none other than quaint John Evelyn, greatest of England's garden philosophers, were responsible. To these terraces the guests would certainly come, and to the world-famous rose-garden, into which Mary Alice could look from her window in the far wing. But even if she were to see no royalty, she was grateful for the privilege of staying on a few days longer in this paradise by the sea. And not the least delight of her new quarters was that they were high enough up so that from them she could overlook the sheltering ilex-trees, which made these marvelous gardens possible so close to the shore, and see the channel ships assailing, three-masted schooners laden with wood, fishing-smacks, London barges with their picturesque red sails bellying in the wind, and an occasional ocean-liner trailing its black smoke across the horizon. 
What with the sea and the gardens, and the rich history of the place, Mary Alice felt that she could never tire of it, even if she did not see the king. But it would be delightful to see him, too. Some day the history of this splendid old place would include this royal visit, and Mary Alice, who had read of other such occasions, and wished she might have been a mouse in a corner to witness them, as for instance, when Queen Elizabeth was here, now felt the thrill of having that wish come true, in a way, and so far from feeling set aside or slighted, liked her window in the wing, and her participation in the party, above any other she might have had. Mary Alice dined, the first night of the house-party, with the Duchess's older children, and then went back to her room to sit at the window, and look down on the terraces, where, after a while, some of the men-guests came to smoke. It was late, but the twilight still lingered. Mary Alice could not tell who many of the men were, but she could see the king, and she watched him interestedly as he paced up and down. She had been told how no one must speak to a king until the king has first spoken to him, and she felt that at best it must be a dreary business, being a king. Presently, though, in the thickening shadows, she saw a form that made her heart stand still. Could it be? She was probably mistaken, madly mistaken. But something in the way a man down there carried himself made her think of Godmother's little drawing-room in far-off New York, and a man who was playing the game. But the king was talking to this man, talking most interestedly, it seemed. She must be mistaken. Nevertheless, when the men had all gone in, she put on a white shawl and slipped down onto the terrace. She felt as if she must know, and of course she couldn't ask, for she did not know his name. The terraces were deserted, and she paced up and down undisturbed, trying to assure herself that Godmother would probably have known if he were in England. His last letter had been from the Far East, and especially if he were coming here. There were times, as she reminded herself, when she was continually seeing him, out of every crowd, suddenly his tall form would seem to emerge, in the loneliness of quiet places, as by miracle he would seem to be where a moment ago she knew there was no one. Then a sense of separation would intervene, and for days she would be given over to the belief that she was never to see him again. Tonight was doubtless just one of the times when for no reason that she could understand, he seemed physically near to her. She was standing very still in the shadow of an ivy-grown pillar, looking up at the pole star, and wondering if he and his wanderings might not be looking at it too, when a man's voice close beside her made her jump. It was an unfamiliar voice. Stargazing? it said pleasantly. She turned and recognized the king. Yes, your majesty, she answered. At first she thought she was going to be frightened. Then she remembered the secret, and before she knew it she was deep in conversation with the king. As she talked, a puzzled expression she could not see came into the king's face. He had a wonderful memory for names, a memory which seldom failed him. But he couldn't place this girl. And it was dark, too, so he couldn't see her. But he liked to hear her talk. She had that rare thing, in his experience— a fresh, sweet viewpoint. The bloom of enchantment was still on life for her, and as he drew her out, he found that she was refreshing him as nothing had done for a weary while. Then kingly obligation called him indoors to join the throng 
whose everlasting sameness paled on him almost unendurably. Something he said made Mary Alice feel this, made her see, as in a flash, a girl who had gone home once from a party and wept because life was so dull. She was sorry for the king. "'I seldom forget a name,' he said. "'But I—before we go in, won't you please remind me of yours?' Mary Alice laughed. "'Your Majesty has never heard my name,' she said, "'and I can't go in. I'm not of the party,' and she explained. "'I see,' he said. "'I shall have to thank the Duchess. I have had a most refreshing quarter of an hour.' "'I'm glad,' said Mary Alice, simply. "'I felt afraid at first, as nearly everybody does, I suppose. "'And then I thought how dreadful that must be, to have everyone afraid of you, "'when you're really a very nice, gentle person.' I mean, well, I guess your majesty knows what I mean. And then I remembered my secret. Secret? And so, of course, she had to tell. It was rather a long story, hurry as she would, because the king interrupted with so many questions. But she wouldn't tell what the secret was until the very last thing. Um, said the king, when she had finally divulged it. That was all he said, but the way he said it, made Mary Alice know that the secret was right. End of chapter 10